If you've got a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter now for the last several months. Uh, and we come to a text this weekend in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, is where we're going to read this morning. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, the, the text will be on the screen behind me so you can read and follow along with us. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the Apostle Peter writes these words. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, one of the things this morning that I just go ahead and say at the outset that I like about preaching, we, what we do here mostly at Redeemer is preach with the grain of Scripture as opposed to across it. So in other words, we're going through books of the Bible as opposed to hopping around from book to book to book to put together a series of all my favorite passages that I like to preach on every year. And so I like to work through the grain of Scripture. One of the things I like about that is it brings us to texts like this that don't typically fit into a series somewhere that we might drop in. It forces us to deal with portions of the Bible that maybe we're not really comfortable dealing with always within the context of the church. It forces us to look at texts that don't play well within our culture. And sometimes it forces us to look at texts that don't really play well within the church either. And I believe this is one of those texts that we come to this morning that sometimes it doesn't very, play very well within the culture, right? So it may, not, it may, it may get you a lot of Facebook um, looks, but it not, may not get you a, lot, a whole lot of Facebook likes to come to a text like this one, right? So Peter's been working his way through, talking to us about what it means to live as one who doesn't belong to this world but lives in this world. He's been talking to us about what it means to live as a sojourner, as a resident alien who's on green card status here on the earth because our citizenship is in heaven. So we live as resident aliens. Those of us who are God's people, who are in Christ, we're God's chosen race, we're his royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we're a people for God's own possession to proclaim his excellencies because he's called us out of stumbling around in the darkness trying to figure out life for ourselves and he's brought us into the light to show us why we were created and what we are to live for. So he says, what does it look like to live as that kind of a sojourner? What does it look like to be citizens of God's kingdom and yet still live amongst the kingdoms of this world? And that's what he comes to talk to us about in this particular text as he begins to drill down on the issue of authority. The issue of authority. Now, most of us might go in the immediate context, might go, man, why is Peter now starting to talk to us about what it looks like to live under authority? If you look back in the text, a couple of things, those of you who are new with us, I want to draw your attention to. In the immediate context, he's just finished talking to us about this position of privilege that we have now of being in Christ, that we belong to him, that we're his chosen race, we're his royal priesthood. There's a chosenness and a royalty to who we are. There's a holiness and a distinct and set apartness about our identity. There's, we're the treasured possession of God, he says. So he, been, he talks through our identity as a people belonging to God. And then back in chapter 1, he talked to us extensively about holiness, what holiness is. And at that point, we said holiness is not us 
retaining ownership of our lives and leasing space to God in those areas where, we're comf- where it's comfortable and convenient for us to give up control. But we said holiness is pushing all our chips to the center of the table and saying, I'm all in on Jesus. So whatever he says, I'm going to bend my knee only to him. I'm going to bow my will only to him. And you can imagine in a setting like that where Peter's been talking to us about privileged position of being those who are in Christ and those who are submitting only to God, bowing their knee only to the King Jesus in whose kingdom in which we now live as his beloved sons. In that particular type of a context where Peter's been speaking to those things, there might be a people who are tempted to disregard the rulers and authorities who operate in the kingdoms of this world because we're only bending our knee to the great king, Jesus. And so Peter feels like he's got to come and address that. He's got to come and address that issue of authority in our lives. Now, lest some of you think, man, that's probably the only issue they wrestled with back then. Let me go ahead and tell you it's not. It's an an issue that we continue to wrestle with today. Listen, because that issue is not not isolated to a particular cultural, historical framework or context, but that issue is part of what it means to be human to some degree. Because our struggle with authority is not rooted in a particular context or historical framework. Our struggle with authority in our lives is ultimately rooted in the fall. See, our first parents back there in the garden, whenever they come, God creates them and they live in fellowship with him and they walk with him and they talk with him. And he says, hey, listen, you come and eat of any tree in the garden other than this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He puts that one tree out of bounds. But whenever they lay eyes onto it and the serpent tempts them and deceives them, Eve says the reason that she takes of the fruit is because it was pleasant to the eyes and good for food, but also because it would make her like God. It would make her like God. So in other words, she would go from being one who was under authority to one who was in authority. And so she takes her the fruit. See, our issue with authority in our lives isn't rooted in a context of culture or history, but it transcends that. It's a theological issue for us. It's an issue where it's rooted in the fall and it's inflamed, right? It's there in all of us, but particular cultures might inflame it more than others. They might fan it into flame more than others. And I believe that we live in a culture where it's being, like there's lots of oxygen getting to that fire right now (laughs) in the culture in which we live. And here's a part of the reason why. Let me take you, let me take you uh, uh, to an article written by, um, or actually a book written by Dr. Leonard Sachs. He's a family physician and psychologist for the last 27 years. And he's recently published a book entitled The Collapse of Parenting. The Collapse of Parenting. And the Associated Press, in an interview with him about that particular book that he wrote and why he called it what he called it, listen to what he says. He wrote, um, they asked him, what exactly do you mean by the collapse of parenting? And this is what he says. He says, I wrote about an office visit with a 10-year-old boy who was sitting and playing a game on his mobile phone, ignoring me and his mom as I'm talking with his mom about his stomachache. And his mom begins then to describe what's going on and the symptoms that her son is exhibiting and talking about his stomachache, to which he looks up from the game and looks at her and says, shut up, mom. You don't know what you're talking about. Looks back down at the game and begins to chuckle. He says, that would have been very unusual in 1990. And those of you raised before that know how unusual that would have been back then as well. Right? Somebody's going to slap you in the next week. You say something like that, 
Right? He says it would have been very unusual in 1990 or even in 2000, but now he says it's common. Children, girls, and boys being disrespectful to parents, being disrespectful to one another, and being disrespectful to themselves verbally and otherwise. He says the mother sat there in that instance and did nothing, just looked a little embarrassed. And he goes on to draw a conclusion from that based on his 27 years of experience and seeing the culture as it shifted. He says the culture has changed in a profound way in a short period of time in ways that have really harmed children, that have really harmed kids. So the AP responds with a follow-up question, what's the book really about then? And he responds with this answer. He says it's about the transfer of authority from parents to kids. And the collapse of parenting is about the transfer of authority from parents to their children. He says, he says don't get me wrong. I think you should treat kids like grown-ups. I think you should expect them to be mature and to mature developmentally and to behave. And I think that's what it means to treat someone like a grown-up, among other things. He says, but it's not to treat your kids as, as a grown-up as they mature through developmental phases. Is not, he says, about the abdication or the giving over of authority. He says, for example... I love the fact that he gives us a few examples. He says, for example, it's common now in this country to find parents who are chauffeuring their 8-year-old or their 12-year-old around to various schools as among families who are trying to select a school for their child, where their child's going to go when they move into perhaps a new district or a new area. So they chauffeur their kids around to these schools, and the parent functions as an educational consultant. The parent makes a recommendation, but the child makes the final decision. He says, I know of cases where the kid was clearly making the wrong decision and the parents knew it and consulted with me about it, but nevertheless felt completely powerless to overrule their child. And he says, in the end, the child is the one who suffers. The child is the one who suffers. So the AP says, well, what are some other examples? Now, this wasn't going to touch close to home. I'm going to get some emails this week. He says, this, the same, I set up a false email address that I'll go to, by the way. Uh, he says, the same is true with regard to the cell phone in the bedroom. Come on now. You can now find kids at 10, 12, 14, 16 years of age who have their phone in their bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning. He says, you should take the device at night and put it on the charger, which stays in the parent's bedroom. No child should have the phone in their bedroom unsupervised. And then he goes on to say, this is not my opinion. He says, that's the official teaching of the American Academy of Pediatrics and guidelines published in October 2013. He says, but you would be astonished, or maybe you wouldn't be. You would be astonished how many parents find that an impossible recommendation because they feel they have no authority over their child in many of the domains of their child's life. Now, some of you read the text with us earlier and you go, he's talking about emperors and he's talking about governors and civic authority. Like, why are we talking about kids? Listen, let me tell you why we're talking, why, why this whole introduction, all right, this is all introduction, right? <laughs> why this introduction is about children in the context of the family and the recognition of authority that God has ordained and given. Here's why, because we have a generation of emerging adults who have been in authority in their homes, and never under authority in their homes. And as they emerge into adulthood, they're going to continue to push back against all the authority structures in their life, against their teachers, against their professors, against their employers, against law enforcement officers. 
They're going to treat them with disrespect and they're going to dishonor and they're going to push back at every turn and in every instance because they've been in authority but not under authority. And unless they learn to be under authority in our homes, in our homes, listen, life is not going to go well for them. We're not going to have people who are subjecting themselves to, the, to, to civil authority. We're not going to have an emerging generation of adults who are subjecting themselves to the authority of, of, of city officials, of county officials, of law enforcement officers, of mayors, of HOA boards. Because they've never learned what it is to be under authority. They've always been in it. Listen, if you have a generation of emerging adults who have been deferred to about every decision, like, where are we going to go eat tonight? I say, I don't know. Ask the kids. I'm not saying you never take your kids to the restaurants they want to go eat at. But if you defer to them about every decision, where are you going to go get your education? When is it okay for you to have a cell phone? If you defer to your kids about where, where you're going to go on vacation every year, you defer to your kids about what you're going to do in every day of your life. Listen, a child that's grown up in that environment and been deferred to and deferred to and deferred to and deferred to, when they emerge into adulthood and there's no longer deference on the part of the police officer and there's no longer deference on the part of the government official or the judge that they're standing before, it's not going to go well for them. It's not. Because they've been in authority and not under it. See, what a part of what it looks like, let me go ahead and let's go ahead and move into the text now, okay? We're done with the introduction. Part of what it looks like, part of what it looks like to live as a sojourner in this life is to learn to live as one who is under authority. To learn to live as one who is under authority. Being a, ho a holy, holy nation, a chosen race, God's treasured possession, those who are in Christ. Part of what it looks like to live as a subject of the kingdom of God, a citizen of the kingdom of God, in the kingdoms of this world, is learning to live under authority. And here's why. All right, Here's why. First point. Point number one. We finally made it. Here's why. You have to see there is an, in, in, in order to live this way, you have to begin to see there is an authority under and over and around all human authority. All human authority. So in other words, your disposition, the way that you relate to authority that's been ordained and appointed by God is the prime indicator of your disposition towards the authority of God. Did you get that? Let me say it again in another way. How you respond to human authority in your life that you can see, that you can interface with face-to-face -face, is the prime indicator of how you're responding to the authority of God whom you can't see. Because there is an authority under and over all authority. Let me show this to you biblically and instinctively, okay? Biblically, in Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul writes these words in verses 1 and 2. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. That's a strong statement. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
Paul says, there is no governor, there is no mayor, there is no president, there is no house representative, there is no sentence seat, there is no person in parliament across the ocean or king who is risen based upon his lineage that has been appointed or ascended into their position outside of God's hand. Now, whether or not they have come into those positions of authority to bless or to judge, it's a whole other question. But there is no authority, Paul says, outside of that which God has appointed. Even Jesus recognizes this. In John chapter 19, as he stands on the heels, a threshold of his crucifixion, He's been passed around from person to person to issue judgment upon what should be done with him. And as he stands before Pilate, the governor who had been appointed by the emperor to dispense justice in Galilee, he stands before Pilate and Pilate says, aren't you going to talk to me? In John chapter 19, 10 and 11, Pilate says, you're not going to speak to me? And don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And listen to what Jesus says to him. It's beautiful. Jesus looks Pilate in the face, the man, humanly speaking, who has authority over the province in which he is now a prisoner. And in verse 11, Jesus answered him and said, you, have, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus recognizes this, that there is an authority above all authority, or there's authority underneath all authority. You see, what the Apostle Paul makes incredibly explicit, incredibly explicit in Romans 13, Jesus embodies in John 19. So biblically, there's no authority uh, other than that which God's appoints. There's authority over all and under all authority. But you also, listen, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background has been, and whether you subscribe to everything this book teaches in the Bible, you know this to be true instinctively as well. Not just biblically, but instinctively. And here's how. Here's how. Listen, uh, Tim Keller has is, is, uh, been a helpful resource to me over the years. And he preached a sermon on this particular text um, a number of years ago. And I was listening to it this week as I kind of put together thoughts to present this morning. And as he talks about, as he talks about authority, he says, listen, authority and everything that, he said, everything that I've read, authority is basically this. It's the marriage between power and legitimacy. Between power and legitimacy. So you can have all the power in the world, but not have, not have the legitimacy to back it up. And what you would have is tyranny. You'd have oppressive regimes and dictatorships. Or you can be the legitimate heir and have legitimacy, but not have power and therefore have no authority. So true authority is that marriage between power and legitimacy. But listen, as soon as you introduce the concept of legitimacy into the conversation, here's what happens. If you're going to talk about whether or not authority is legitimate based upon the character of that authority or based upon the lineage of that authority, depending upon what system you're operating in, as soon as you interject the discussion of legitimacy, you're comparing the authority that you're under to some higher authority. As soon as you go, well, is, this, is, is their authority legitimate? Do they operate in a way that's honorable? Well, you're, you're measuring that against something else. You're measuring it against something else. So even people who don't recognize the Bible as a source of authority, they instinctively feel this. Because when they see dictators who would 
who would slaughter their people, they go, that is not legitimate authority. Well, by whose standard? There's got to be a standard above it and beneath it to support it and over, uh, rule over it by which you measure the exercise of authority. Are you with me? So you know this. Biblically, the scriptures teach this. Instinctively, we know it. And Peter implies it in this text. In verse 13, listen to what he says. He says, be subject to every human institution. That's how my translation words it. Yours, if you have, I think the NIV might word it. Every human authority. Be subject, come underneath their authority. Why? For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Listen, students. We got some, some grade school kids in here as well this morning. Listen, it doesn't say be subject for your parents' sake. It doesn't say, listen, adults, it doesn't say be subject for the HOA or school board's sake. It doesn't say be subject for the mayor or city council's sake. It doesn't say be subject for the governor or law enforcement's sake. It doesn't say be subject for the circuit or Supreme Court's sake. It doesn't say be subject for the House or the Senate's sake. It doesn't even say be subject for the president's sake. It says be subject for Jesus' sake. Because he is the authority above and below, beneath and ruling over all authority. And if you're going to live as a sojourner in this world, living beautiful lives among the Gentiles, as we said last week, there's got to be a disposition towards authority that recognizes its God-given place and that we come under it. And in so doing, we're coming under God's authority. And we're going to get to that more in a little bit because we ain't done. Part of the reason this is so important, here's why. Point two, part of the reason this is so important is because you and my submission to authority functions as an apologetic for the Christian faith. Now, when you see that word apologetic, right? Some of you are going, man, I gotta go around apologizing to everybody, right? I gotta go say, I'm sorry to all these people who disagree with me. No, that's not what we're talking about. Like typically when my kids, my kids do something that's disrespectful or disobedient, we ask them or tell them, right? We don't defer to them on that. We tell them they need to apologize to their sister or to their brother or to their mom or to their dad or to their friend. Right? You need to apologize. You need to say you're sorry, but that's not what I'm talking about here. The word apologetic is also a technical term to, that communicates the idea of giving a defense, in other words, uh, an explanation for why it is that you do what you do or why it is that you live how you live. There's a defense that you're giving with that. And I want you to notice what Peter says in verse 15. He says, for this is the will of God that by doing good, what is the doing good? Being subject to the human authorities, to the ruling bodies that God has elevated and appointed, whether it be to bless or to judge, to be subject to them. That's the doing good. He says, that is God's will for you. That is what God desires for you. It's what God wants for you. It's what God commands of you if you're in Christ, that you come underneath those governing authorities. He says, and here's why, that by doing good, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice what he doesn't say. Right? There, are, there are rational apologetics, right? There are intellectual arguments for the existence of God and the, the validity of the scriptures and what they communicate. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's not talking about, he doesn't say that by believing what is true, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He didn't say that, does he? He says, but by doing good, 
You may put to silence the foolishness of those who are ignorant or ill-informed. He's not talking about uh, rational intellectual arguments. He's talking about moral or social or behavioral evidence. It's God's will for this. Now this, is, this, this gets us into a, a, a pretty tense situation right now for us, doesn't it? But I want you to understand that Peter is not writing into a context much different from our own. Listen, Peter is not writing into a context. What's amazing about what he says here, about being subject to the governing authorities, what's amazing about this is that Peter is not writing into a context where the emperor is showing up every Sunday morning in church with his hands raised, his eyes closed, got a little tear rolling down his cheek as he sings it as well, or how great thou art. That's not what's going on in the backdrop of what Peter is saying here. Peter's not riding into a context where the emperor was kind of like was on Jesus' team or he was Jesus' groupie. The emperor wasn't somebody who uh, was a fan of Jesus or a follower of Jesus. Peter's riding into a context where the emperor's in the other dugout. He's on the other sideline. Right? He's not a fan of Jesus. He's not a follower of Jesus. He is a follower of his fathers and walked in their footsteps demanding worship of himself because he was a megalomaniac. In fact, he was as anti-Christian as they come. His name was Nero. If you know anything about history of the Roman Empire, this dude was wheels off. Because this guy, right, he's, he, what most historians believe, he set a fire in Rome himself in order to clear out a particular neighborhood so he could build a, a complex that he wanted to build. And then he blamed the fire on the Christians in Rome in that day. And they began a mass persecution of the Christians, whereby he would then take them, dip them in tar. There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do so. But he would dip them in tar and he would hang them in his gardens, light them on fire so they would provide Mood lighting for all of his parties. I'm telling you, man, this guy was wheels off when it came to persecution of the church. And this is the context into which Peter is writing. That's amazing to me. Nero wasn't going to Christian concerts. He wasn't passing Christian legislation. He wasn't issuing Christian-friendly edicts or executive orders. He wasn't misquoting Bible verses. He didn't have pastors on stage to not endorse him. He was about as anti-Christian as they come. And yet in two places in this text, the very beginning and the very end, and I think he repeats it because he knew what a struggle it would be. He says, honor, be subject to the governing authorities, be subject to human authority, be subject to human institutions, whether it be the emperor as supreme. And then he drops down to the end of verse 17 and he says, honor him. Honor him. And you're honoring of him is an apologetic for your faith. Listen, does your Christian, I'm gonna ask you a question. Let's push this down a little bit. Does your Christian faith make you more or less inclined to come under human authority? Does your Christian faith make you more or less inclined to come under human authority? And I know this isn't about parents and students, but I'm gonna press this more because I think it needs to be. Students, do you want your friends to take your Christian faith seriously? If you do, yes, you need to be able to give them rational defenses for the things that you hold, affirm, confess, and believe. But you know what else you need? 
you, some of us in the room need to repent of this constant pushback mode that we live in against the God-ordained and appointed authority in our homes. Constant pushback mode. Now, I'm not talking about parents who abuse you. I'm not talking about parents who neglect you or parents who mistreat you. I'm not talking about parents who ask you to go with them as they smoke weed or parents who ask you to come sit in the living room while they turn out prostitutes from their bedroom. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God-ordained authority in your, in your home. Some of you are just living in constant pushback mode against that. Or you live a life that constantly criticizes your teachers and the authority that they have as one who's been tasked with the, 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 the responsibility of instructing you. Listen, one of the ways that I know I'm getting closer to 40 is the fact that I find myself watching the History Channel <laughs> I find myself kind of watching the History Channel, some things going on. And I came across a show a couple of, a couple of I guess it was a week and a half ago. Um, and it was a show um, that, that documented the 10 most extreme airports on the face of the earth. 10 most extreme airports on the face of the earth. Now, some of these airports, most of them were located in very mountainous regions, high altitude, kind of terrain all around them that made the approach or the takeoff very challenging or difficult. Or they were located in the heart of a busy city or the airspace above the airport was incredibly congested because they had one runway and one airport servicing a major metropolitan area. So you had all this, these 10 extreme airports. But some of the common denominators between some of these airports was this, was the fact that they were in very inhospitable environments, and in those very inhospitable environments, up high in the altitude, like Eagle County Airport in Vail, Colorado, or like the, like the airport that sits on the tip of the Rock of Gibraltar, right there at the bottom of Spain, or the airport that exists in the kind of mountainous regions of Tibet to fly people in to climb Everest. They're located in these regions where the wind and the weather have authority. They have authority. And over and over and over and over again, these pilots who talked about flying into these airports, they talked about if you tried to fly into some of these airports, in fact, some of these airports you had to actually check off on and be approved to fly into because of how dangerous they were. That gives you great confidence of air travel right now, doesn't it? Um, so you had to check off on these things. But the pilots all to a person talked about how if you did, coming onto approach or take off in those airports, if you didn't respect and submit to the authority of the wind and the weather in those locations, it wasn't going to end well for you. In fact, some of them talked about the takeoffs in those mountainous regions and how the tip of the runway, you know, basically at the end of the runway, you had to have a very steep ascent. And because the wind was were coming over the mountain, they were creating an updraft. It would just suck you up very quickly, and so your ascent would be much faster than it would be in a, in a normal location like at DFW. So you're quickly ascending, and as that updraft sucks you up on that quick ascent, there's all kind of turbulence, right? And the, and the, the plane is just shaking. You ever been on one of those little twin props whenever they hit those pockets of air, and it feels like you just dropped 100 feet in the air? Right? They're just shaking all the way up because the wind's pushing them up because they're working with the authority of the wind in that location, and it's pushing them up and raising them. But if they fight against the wind, if they don't respect the authority of the, the conditions in those locations, it will tear the plane into pieces. And listen, students, that's where some of your lives are right now. Or that's where they will be 
if you continue to live in this constant pushback mode. Some of you are fighting your parents at every turn, but what you don't realize is that what you're fighting is the God-ordained authority he's put in your life for your good, like gravity. You don't break the law of gravity. You break yourself against the law of gravity. You need to recognize that God has given your parents authority in your life not to dominate you, but to disciple you. To disciple you. And a part of discipling you is them being older, and you all like to point that out, but wiser, Lord willing, so that they, the authority they have in your life is to, is to say no to sin for you before you're prepared and equipped to say no to it for yourself. And that's a good thing in your life. And if you keep pushing against it, you're going to be like a plane that just gets shattered into pieces on the side of a mountain. Adults, does your Christian faith make you a better or worse citizen of the earthly kingdom in which you sojourn? Does it make you a better citizen of Royce City, a better citizen of fate, a better citizen of Rockwall County? See, your, your friends need, don't just need intellectual arguments either. They need a life that's lived underneath the authority structures God has put in place that is not just trying to constantly manipulate and work the system to get what you want, but a life and a character that is in a life and a character that's free to disagree with the policy and actions of those who are elected authorities without slandering them. Listen, it's time for Christians just, just to stop. Sometimes on Facebook and on social media, all the character assassinations of people who are running for office are in office. Listen, I think it's pretty important though that we recognize there's a little bit of a distinction for us between the historical context and the, the governmental context in which Peter's writing, the one in which we're operating. C.E.B. Cranfield's a commentator, wrote about this in his commentary on this on this on First Peter. He says this at this point, um, at this point, we must notice a significant difference between the situation envisioned, envisaged, envisioned, basically. Um, by the New Testament writers in our own. They were thinking in terms of an authoritarian state, which was the only form of state they had to deal with, and therefore regard the citizen solely as a subject whose duty to the state was mainly passive, a matter of obedience and paying taxes. But we live under a different form of state, a democracy, which needs from its citizens not merely respect for authority and submission to taxation, but also an active and responsible cooperation. The citizen is not merely a subject. He actually shares in the responsibility of government. Part of what it means to live in a democracy as opposed to a monarchy. So there's a little bit of a distinction here. And here's part of what this means for us. Is that you can speak for, you can vote for, you can petition for, you can lobby for legislation to be passed that are, is consistent with the particular worldview that you have as operating as a sojourner in this world. But at the end of the day, whenever the legislation is passed, if it is not, doesn't lead you into direct contradiction of Scripture, but it's just basically your opinion or how you feel about a particular matter, then that legislation should be submitted to. Listen, I have this conversation quite frequently. It surprised some of you as a pastor. People go, well, man, I think recreational marijuana use should be perfectly legal. I'd love it. And so they asked me about that, like, does the Bible say anything about smoking weed? I get that question. It's fun. 
Does the Bible say anything about, why can't I smoke weed anymore? And a part of what I tell them is I tell them, because you live in the state of Texas. And the state of Texas has said that it's against the law. It's a violation of legislation and laws that are in place in this state. If you lived in Colorado, I'd have a conversation with you about wisdom and about prudence. But you don't live there. You can vote for, you can try and legislate for, you can try and sign petitions for, you can try and lobby for that to take place here. But right now, it's against the law. Will you subject yourself to the governing authorities? Listen, let me talk about one that might touch a little bit closer to home for some of us in here. There's a whole lot of conversation about gun legislation and gun control legislation that may be passed or people want to push through. Let me ask you a question. When it comes to the issue of gun control, listen, I've, I've, read, I've read this book from cover to cover. Um, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says that God has given the state the sword not to exercise it in vain, but to bring judgment at times. But from what I could tell, there's no biblical right of gun ownership. If I'm wrong, please come talk to me about it. Show me. I'm happy to have the conversation with you. And listen, as, as that conversation heats up in our culture, here's a question for you. You may sign petitions, and you may lobby, and you may vote. But should a legislation pass requiring the confiscation of all registered firearms, when the ATF officer shows up on your doorstep, to ask for the firearms you have in your possession, how will you respond? Some of you are thinking right now, man, I'd go down in a blaze of glory. <laughs> or will you look at that ATF officer in the face and say, I disagree with you. I disagree with this law. I disagree with this legislation. I don't believe this is right. And I'm not submitting out of fear of what you can do to me. And I'm not submitting out of the coercive tactics that you may employ. I'm not submitting it because I don't want to go to prison. But I'm submitting to you. Because I'm submitting to the authority that's above all authority and under all authority. That's a question. See, is, is your Christian faith, does it make you a better or worse citizen of the community in which you live? Your submission to authority is an apologetic, a defense for the greatest authority. I had two other things to say, but we're not going to get to them. I'm going to use prudence a little bit this morning. Listen, we live in a culture that bristles at this idea of authority because it's rooted in the fall, inflamed by our culture. Peter says in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, 
In other words, using your freedom in Christ to rebel against everything that your parents, everything that the civil authorities, everything that your HOA passes and requires. Don't use your freedom in Christ just because you disagree and have a differing opinion to say, no, I'm free from all of that. He says, use your freedom as a servant of Jesus. As a servant of Jesus. So you're submitting out of service to this great king who has authority over everyone and everything that has ever been created. So you're bending your knee to him by bending your knee to the authorities that God has ordained and established. Using your freedom as servants. So you're free from fear. You're free from coercion. You're even free from your own ego. Because some of us, when we want to resist, we want to say, I'm right. But in Christ, you can even be free from your own ego. To be subject to the authorities that God has ordained. You're absolutely free to be servants of Jesus and live as sojourners in this kingdom. Oh, and I pray that, this, that we as a church would. Would you join me in that? Father, we come today recognizing your authority over all things. And God, for us, this is, part of this is a spiritual maturity issue. God, would you help us in that? Father, because we confess that without you, we, we would continue to live as infants. So we need your grace to enable and empower us to live as a distinct people, a holy nation that comes under the authority of all the authorities that you've appointed and ordained. So that we would not break our lives against the wind and the weather and the side of the mountain, but so that we might, we might live Godward lives. Not lives lived unto the president, not lives lived unto the Senate or the House, not lives lived unto our governor, but lives lived unto our king. And because we live unto our king, in all things that he, all things that he commands, we submit. But in anything that we're commanded to do that would violate his, we do not. No matter the consequences of the cost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.